Father, great is your name and greatly to be praised are you. As you bring your word this morning, Lord, may our hearts be opened. May we have the seeing eye and the hearing ear. Father, that uh, we will be blessed by your Holy Spirit as we hear your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The uh, subject of my sermon, the title of my sermon this morning is Finishing Well. The Bible says that many are called and few are chosen. Faithfulness over time is by far the most difficult test of Christianity. In 1992, I was in Russia on a short-term mission trip. The Berlin Wall had come down in November of 1991, and now Christianity could be preached in Russia. Communism had left a huge vacuum in the country. People didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And on this particular Sunday morning, I was one of three pastors who was going to preach at this theater that they rented. There were no churches available. They rented the theater, but the theater wouldn't rent them any heat. It was January, and the people all sat in their coats and caps, in their mittens, and when we sang and they clapped, it was kind of a muffled thump, thump as they clapped. And when I got up to speak, the first thing I said to him was this, and there were just a great number of young people in that theater. I said to them, I have been a Christian for over 40 years, and it is the most wonderful life a person can live. They just stood up spontaneously. They stood up and they cheered. They wanted to know, will it last? Is Jesus real? Can we trust the word of God? What is this all about? Is there really something to it? I'm going to talk to you today about the things we might do as Christians to finish well. This is not just a sermon for older people because finishing well talks about a positive conclusion to a total Christian life. My message for today comes from the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8. through 8. If you have a Bible with you, you could open to those verses. Paul is sitting in a Roman prison cell in a place called Mamertine Prison in Rome, a terrible prison. His cell is under the floor. They lowered him into that cell through a hole above. He has no heat. He has no facilities. He has no bed. <clears throat> and yet, when he looks over his life, this is the accounting he gives. He knows that his life is going to be taken shortly. And here's what he writes to his adopted son, Timothy. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. What a victorious statement to make based on the conditions that he was in at the time. The problem is not everyone finishes well. 
Many appear to start well, but are not found at the end. Just a few lines later, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was a young man that Paul had mentored, and Demas deserted Paul, never to be heard of again. One of the uh, well-known sayings and quotes of the famous Yogi Berra goes like this, it's not over till it's over. People can appear to run the race for a long way only to come up short. The enemy never gives up until our last breath is gone. That means we have to run the race through the finish line. We don't want to run the race and just fall over when we get to the finish line. Paul is saying, I have run the race. I have kept the faith. God wants us to sprint through the finish line. I can't sprint like I used to. Can't even beat my grandchildren anymore in a race. But I have spiritual legs. And those spiritual legs, I'm praying, are going to carry me through. As you know, it's not a matter of legs, but a matter of the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So we need to know who our treasure is. And I'm going to talk about four things out of Paul's life that show us what it means to finish well and strong and how to do it. Let's understand that these are not biblical mandates, but things that we do see evidenced by others and in the Scripture. And time has shown them to be essential parts of our relationship with God through Christ. The first of them is daily time focused on communion with God. And the biggest aspect of that, of course, is prayer. It was Paul who wrote from a Philippian jail cell, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. <clears throat> do you think Paul had anything else to do besides pray? He traveled all through the known world at that time. And yet, every day he took time to pray with God, to spend time with God in prayer. Prayer is not just running a list of our needs past the Lord. Prayer is an act of worship. Prayer is surrender to the reality that there is someone more ultimate than you are. Prayer is surrender of your right to live as you choose. Prayer is surrender of your hopes to the grace of God. We need to have a desire to use our prayers to draw us closer in our relationship with the Lord. We do need to have a plan because if we try to do these things randomly, they will never succeed. Demas didn't just wake up one morning and decide he would desert Paul. He drifted away slowly and the day came when he just decided he would leave and he never came back. There's a story about a missionary in Africa who converted a small village of people and he taught them about their relationship with the Lord and he taught them about having a daily prayer time. And he said, you can find a place alone. So they went out in a bush each morning to pray and take time to pray. Well, after about two months, he could see those who were doing it and those who weren't because the ones who didn't, weeds had grown over in their prayer path. And he could see that they were no longer going out there. Job had a plan. Job 1.5 says that early in the morning, Job would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Praying for his children was a part 
of his daily prayer time with the Lord. Dads, one of the big opportunities for you to demonstrate the spiritual leadership in your family is a willingness to pray for your wife and your children every day. Carol and I have a dedicated prayer time, as we did this morning, and we pray for each of our children and grandchildren by name, 22 in number now. It's a joy and a privilege for us to be able to do that. We pray for 28 missionaries and 15 widows and a number of others as well. But our children, ages now five of them, 55 to 45, will often call us and say, will you pray for me today? I've got a big business meeting. I've got this going on. This is happening. Would you pray for me today? Because they know that we will pray for them each and every morning. Jesus had a plan as well. Mark 1.35 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Martin Luther said that he accomplished more on his knees in the morning than he did the rest of his entire day. If we get in the habit of greeting the Lord in the morning and talking to him about our love for him, our thankfulness for his care in our lives, praying for our needs and asking for his daily direction, we'll begin to see answers on a regular basis and we will grow stronger each and every day. The second thing we need to have is a daily relationship, a daily realization of our living relationship with Jesus Christ as we consider the importance of the gospel in our lives on a daily basis. The first thing that I do when I get up in the morning is thank the Lord for the day and for the gift of life that he's given me through his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. A while ago, I <clears throat> preached a sermon on prayer. And in that sermon, I talked about the importance of praying in Jesus' name. I said that because we belong to Jesus, he has given us the authority and power of his name. He now sits at the right hand of his Father, interceding for us. It is because of the power of the cross that we can come into the heavenly throne room as sons and daughters of the Father. It is the gospel that makes it a present reality to us that we are the children of God. In Galatians 2.21, Paul says to us, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Although justification happens at an instant in a point of time, it is inseparably tied to our daily sanctification. When a person becomes a member at Highland, uh, part of the process is having an interview with the elders, a low-pressure interview. We don't vote on members. We just interview you. And in that interview, the first question we ask you is about your salvation, your testimony of a Christian as Jesus Christ. And often we'll hear things like this. Well, when I was seven years old, my mom told me about Jesus, and when we were done, she asked me if I wanted to pray to receive Jesus as Savior, and I said I did. And if you would uh, ask Pastor Jeff, he would tell you that happened to him when he was four years old. I don't know if I was talking yet at four years old, but he was praying with his mother. 
What we really want to know, and that's not the right question to ask, what we really want to know is this. What is the situation of your relationship with Jesus Christ today? What is it today? We are not discounting the prayer you prayed when you were young, but what is important is that you know the reality of Jesus Christ in your life right now. A Bible teacher named Bruce Wilkerson uh, illustrated that with a, a sermon he gave called The Three Chairs, and I'm going to borrow a part out of his sermon. He used a passage out of Joshua and out of Judges, and in Joshua it said, Joshua served the Lord throughout the life, the Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua, and the elders who outlived him, and knew the works that the Lord had done for Israel. But after them a generation arose that did not know God and had not heard of his works. We're going to put Joshua in the first chair. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about being hot for Jesus in 2020. And that's where Joshua sits. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua saw God open the Jordan River. He saw the walls of Jericho fall down. And after Joshua, there were elders that lived. But as the elders lived, they began to drift slowly away from the Lord to the point where when we got to the next generation, it says in the book of Judges, they did not even know the Lord nor the works that he had done. Two generations away, and they had totally deserted God. Let me put a royal family in these chairs, King David. David was a man who had a heart after God. Who was David's favorite son? Solomon, right? Solomon started like this. And slowly through the course of his life, Solomon began to drift. You'll remember that he brought wives in, foreign wives, for political alliances. And what did they do? They brought their gods along with them. And they began to worship their gods in Israel. There's a story about a fifth grade Sunday school teacher who was teaching his class about Solomon. And he asked his class, how many wives did Solomon have? And little Johnny raised his hand. And Johnny said he had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> 300 wives and 700 concubines. And what happened to Joshua or to Solomon? Here he was. And who was Solomon's son? Solomon's son was Rehoboam. What happened to Rehoboam? Rehoboam broke the kingdom. He inherited the kingdom. And he fractured the kingdom totally. And he left God two generations later and it was gone. What chair are you sitting in? And what chair am I sitting in? Let's ask the man in chair number two to give his testimony. Oh, good morning. It's so happy to be here today. When I was 12 years old, I was at a Christian camp, and one night they were singing songs around the campfire, and somebody asked me if I knew Jesus, and I said no. And he said, would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior? And I said yes. And I prayed to receive Jesus. It was the most memorable day of my life. I'll never forget it. Now I'll ask the person in chair number one, 
or his testimony. Good morning. Last night as I was reading my devotion in Philippians, the Lord spoke to me through Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, and I'd like to share a little bit with it, of it with you this morning. You see the difference? Do you hear the difference? When I was 12, yesterday, last night, last Sunday morning, I had a man say to me as we were talking before the service, I read Psalm 1, Psalm 1 this morning, and God had a wonderful message for me in it. Can we make our children become Christians? We cannot, can we? You know where most of our children sit before when they leave our homes for college or for work, they sit in the second chair, okay? You know where their faith has come from? Mom and dad. Walking to walk, talking to talk. And when they get out, they have to decide if it belongs to them. Saved, saved, not saved. Some of our children leave home in this chair. And they have to discover whether or not they can move from here to here. I'm going to put a word behind each chair. The word behind this chair is commitment. Commitment. This person is committed to the Lord. Their heart is given and committed to the Lord. The word behind this chair is compromise. Compromise. The people in this chair, to them it's important. The clothes they wear, the kind of car they drive, the house they live in, the job they have. Not that those things don't have meaning in our lives, but they have drawn them away from God because they are occupied with them. And when that happens, when there's compromise here, in this chair there is conflict. And the children don't know if it's real. They don't see the talk being walked. And often they leave the home and they leave God. What chair are you and I going to sit in? What is our responsibility toward the Lord? Our responsibility is to expose our children to the gospel, to the name of Jesus, and to walk the life before them so we can hand them the baton. So we can hand them the baton as we move on and they can pass that baton to someone else. Number three comes from Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We need to make a commitment of ourselves to the Lord as his servants, including not only who we are, but what we have. When Paul is talking about the offering here, he's talking about the... Um, sin offering that is laid on the altar and totally consumed. There were offerings where the priest could take part of the meat for themselves after the offering, but on this offering, it's totally consumed, totally burned up, totally used up. It is who we are that we are to give to the Lord. In Acts 4.32, it says this of the New Testament believers. All the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Do we still talk like that today? 
We say that everything comes from God. Do we truly believe that everything we have comes from God? When I left home, I was sitting in this chair. Carol and I sat in this chair until our early 30s when God got a hold of us. When he got a hold of us, he moved us over to the first chair. We were uh, in a denomination where we had very poor teaching about the Word of God. We were doing the best we could, but the best we could was not what God really wanted. We got teaching on the Holy Spirit, and God began to do a, a paradigm shift in our life. And part of that shift was the realization that everything that we had came from God. And so we sat down together and we prayed and we said, Lord, we want to dedicate everything that we have to you. Everything that's ours belongs to you, and we want to say that. And you know, when you make a commitment or a declaration before the Lord, he will give you the opportunity to prove that it is real. And he did that for us as well. You know, when you become a believer, your soul goes from darkness into light. What about your stuff? Your stuff is back here. How does your stuff get over here? Your stuff gets over here when you say to the Lord, we're going to bring our stuff over here and put it in your kingdom for use in your kingdom. <clears throat> Shortly after we did that, a while after, Carol's mother passed away. And she left us a small inheritance. And out of that inheritance, we bought a used conversion van. It wasn't new, it was used, but it was the best vehicle we had ever owned. Drove it home, and when we parked it in the driveway, we got out, and we walked over, and we put our hands on the hood together, and we said, Lord, this belongs to you. This is yours. Thank you for this nice vehicle. Two weeks later, I had not driven it out of the driveway yet. A brother and sister asked if they could take it on vacation. Oh. <laughs> a week later, you might have seen a small tear in my eye as we stood in the driveway with a big smile on our face and waved goodbye to them. Because it was the Lord's. It was not ours. We dedicated our house to the Lord as well. And many times over the years, God has used our house in the lives of others. The final thing we need to finish well is a firm belief in the sovereignty and love of God. In his book, The Road Less Traveled, M. Scott Peck begins with a three-word sentence, Life is difficult. Jesus said in John 16, 33, In this world you will have trouble. But he adds this great encouragement, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There will always be difficult things in our lives that we cannot understand or explain. But if we believe in both the love and sovereignty of God, we'll be able to navigate through them without great damage. By sovereignty of God, I mean that ultimately God has control and power over all things. He has created everything and sustains it by the power of his word. However, the Lord has chosen at times for reasons we cannot know or understand to, expo to express his sovereignty in ways that do not make sense to our human reason. As a result, as his creation, we sometimes become responsible for the consequences of a sinful, depraved world. 
that chooses to cause situations of calamity, disaster, war, and destruction that affect believer and unbeliever alike. At the same time, those same situations give Christians the opportunity to demonstrate the love of God to others and witness the truths of Scripture to an unbelieving world. Who better than Paul knew what it was like to trust the sovereignty of, and love of God? In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 23 through 26, he lists a number of things. He says he has had to endure, trusting God is in control and loving that God will win out in the end. He says, I've been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night on the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. Even as he wrote our text today, he acknowledged the sovereignty of God as he tells us his life is being poured out as an offering, and yet he tells us he is sure of God's love in that there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, the righteous judge will award me on that day. So much of the pain in our lives has been caused by others. We have prodigal children, financial difficulty through others' decisions, rejection in relationships by others, plans that never come to fruition through no direct fault of our own, the loss of loved ones prematurely. The prophet Isaiah tells us that God's ways are higher than ours, and yet we still struggle to understand things for which we will never have the answers. We need to take hold of the word of God and trust that his love is greater, that his mercy is deeper, and the hope he gives us is higher than any calamity that may befall us. The Lord has forgiven our sins and given us the ability to forgive those who have hurt and damaged us as well. Back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svea Flood went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa, to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericssons, and the four of them sought God for direction in those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice. They were led of the Lord to go out from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Noldera, they were rebuffed by the chief who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact the of the, from the village was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Sphia Flood, a tiny woman of only four feet eight inches tall, decided that if it was only one African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus, and in fact, she succeeded. But there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In time, the Ericsons decided they had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station 
David and Svea Flood remained near Nodera to go on alone. Then of all things, Svea found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born who they named Ianna. The delivery, however, was exhausting, and Svea Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only another 17 days. Inside David Flood, something snapped in that moment. He dug a crude grave, buried his, his 70, 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down to the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife, and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and brought her back to the United States at the age three, fearing that she would not live if they stayed in Africa. As the years passed, she grew up in South Dakota, went to college at Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota, married a man named Hurst, a strong Christian, and he got a job out in Seattle as the administrator of a Christian college. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course, she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, all of a sudden, a photo stopped her cold. There, in a primitive setting, was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Sphia Flood. Aggie jumped in her car and went straight to the college faculty member who she knew could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded. The instructor summarized the story. It was about missionaries who had come to Nodera long ago. The birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually he won all the students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ, and even the chief became a Christian. Today there were 600 believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of Sphia Flood. For the first Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with a gift of a vacation to Sweden. There Aggie sought to find her real father, an old man now, David had remarried, fathered four children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had one rule in his family, never mention the name of God, because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he is very ill now. But you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached a 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, 
she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Ianna, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied. Taking him gently in her arms, God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened and the tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued, undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's true. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy who went to the Lord <coughs> grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look his daughter in the eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. A few years later, the Hearst were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, where a report was given from the nation of Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the church, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of David and Sophia Flood. Yes, madam, the man replied in French. His words were being translated into English. It was Sophia Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug and then continued, You must come to Africa to see because your mother is the most famous person in our country. In John 12, 14, 24, Jesus said, Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls into the ground, it can produce many seeds. We are at the beginning of 2020. And my prayer is for you that the desire of your heart is to produce seeds. When a person becomes a Christian, they die to their sin, they die to themselves. And we are filled with the light of Christ, the light that God does not want to be hid under a bushel. And so as we begin this year, we should want to know, can we plant seeds for Jesus so that we might be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have run the race, I have kept the faith as we finish strong. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, who is there like you? One seed four foot eight inches tall, she planted one seed and it spread to a nation. Oh, Father, give us the desire to honor you with our lives, to sit in that first chair, Lord, to give to our 
children the baton that carries the message of the gospel, that we might bring you glory and honor and praise in this coming year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.